Let's go ahead and get started here. Um, homework assignment number three due today. So again, that means if you're submitting it up on D2L, you've got till six o'clock tomorrow mornings for full credit. So make sure you're getting that submitted, um, especially if you've missed one of the first two. So I know a number of people didn't do the first or second one. You get to miss one. So make sure you're doing the third. Make sure you're getting this one in if you've missed one of those. Uh, especially, and of course, if you do all first three, then you can essentially, if you're happy with your grades, you can ignore the fourth one if you like. And then next week on Monday, I'm looking at the solar observations for the last time, so I just need a copy of your data sheet. Uh, if you bring a copy, if not, I can make a copy of it or just take a picture of it, which I did for another class. So just so I get that turned in, I do need to see those uh, one more time and then another Towards middle to later part of November, I'm going to work out the exact schedule when I see where we are. We'll be having one day where we work on the project in class, and I'll go over all the examples we need there, and that'll be actually our lab for the day. And the project is actually due the beginning of the last week of class, which I think is December the 2nd is what I have on the schedule. So you still have about a month left on it if you're getting more observations or need to get a few more. Again, for here, I'm looking for one more new observation for credit, but hopefully you're in the six to seven range now and get a few more this month and you'll be right on track for full credit. If you're running behind, again, that's not gonna kill you. So I've had people who've take, done the project, weren't able to get any observations all semester and still ended up with like a B on the project. So it can be done even if you've gotten nothing. So I don't want you stressing over I've only got two observations so far. You still have a chance to do just fine on the project. So I'll explain the rest of that as we get a little bit closer to those dates. But I do wanna, I am gonna take a look at them one more time and that will be on Monday. And then Wednesday of next week, right, exam time, yay. Uh, that'll be the third exam that covers the last three units, which are pretty much the sections on stars up through what we covered last time. So I've already covered all the material for the exam. We're done with that. What I'm covering today, um, I'm actually jumping ahead and getting a jump start on next week since we're gonna be a little bit pushed next week for time when we have Monday for lecture and then Wednesday is lab, lab and exam. So I'm gonna go ahead and get started on the first couple of sections before we go on into lab today uh, for that. So. That will be next time covering those. Don't forget I gave out those key point sheets. You can use that, write whatever notes you want on it to remind you of anything that you want to remember for the exam and bring those to use during the exam. The review quizzes, don't forget those three. Uh, there's three of them, for each, one for each unit. So one for chapter 17 through 19, one for chapters 20 and 21, and then one for chapter 22. And those are due sometime before the exam. First time you take it, it's extra credit. After that, you can just take it for review. So just as a reminder for those. And then coming up after that, if you're looking ahead, I didn't bother to write it up there, but the, the last article review will be due right after that. Uh, probably the 11th is what I have. So if you did the first two and you're happy with your grades on them, you can just skip that one. So basically, if you got you know, 90%, high 80 or 90%, it's probably not worth your time to do the third one. If you skipped one or did really poorly on one, it's worth it and it gives you a chance to drop a lower grade. So, questions? All right, well, ready for our pictures then. 
And we get to tie in pretty well with what we just talked about the last couple times. This is a nebula known as M42, also known as NGC 1976. Lots of objects have multiple names depending on which catalog. So it's catalog, it's in a number of different catalogs. It has a different name for every single catalog it's in. So those are some of the prominent ones. It's also known as the Orion Nebula. So this is something you can actually see with the naked eye. If you go out and look, if the, you can recognize the constellation of Orion, three bright stars in the belt. And if you look down from the belt, this is one of the objects that you would see there. Obviously, it'll just look like a little blob, almost star-like object, maybe a little bit fuzzy to your eye, but it's actually visible. And that is one of the nearest star-forming regions to us. And said so it's the Orion Nebula. Um, so star-forming region, this is only about 1,500 light years away. Light year, big distance, nearest stars are about, nearest stars about four light years away. So 1,500 may seem far, but when we start talking about our galaxy in a couple of weeks, our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. This is only 1,000 and some light years away. So it's you know, one one hundredth of the distance of our whole galaxy. So in terms of our galaxy size, it's really relatively close to us. And then of course we get further on, we get to talk about much, uh, much greater distances. So what's going on here, and we, we looked at some of these images, right in the central portion, there is a cluster of stars forming. So we call the trapezium, some very bright, hot stars, really young stars. They've only formed within the last few hundred thousand, of ye hundred thousand years. So very, very bright, hot stars. The brightest ones there are the ones that are emitting all the ultraviolet radiation that causes this to glow. So if you remember, gas doesn't shine by itself. If you just have gas there, it's invisible. It would be nice and clear. It's only when you excite it by the ultraviolet radiation of the hot stars. So that's what we get to see here. So that's what's going on is there's a cluster of stars forming here. There's some dark regions where stars are still forming. And the process continues on and on. All righty, questions before we go ahead on? All right. Let's go ahead and get started then. And I'm just going to do like the first two sections. I'm not going to try to get way ahead or anything, but I'm going to do the first couple sections of this, of the next chapter. So we're starting on chapter 23. Um, that way, on Monday, we can finish chapter 23 and do chapter 24. And it gives me a little bit more time to concentrate because the last parts of this and the first part are some of the more more intense parts for now when we start talking about black holes and general relativity and things. It's a little more intense than some of the other material that we've covered so far. So I wanted to go ahead and get a little bit of this and we'll talk about the deaths of, the star, deaths of stars first. So last time we really talked about the end as, as the star was approaching the end of its life. So it was going through all the different phases. It was becoming a red giant. It was becoming a horizontal branch star. It was becoming a supergiant. And then eventually it becomes a planetary nebula. So what we want to look at here is what's happening after this. So this is kind of where we ended up. And the outer layers, there's the, the white dwarf star. Looks a little red in this image because of the colorization that's been done. But the white dwarf would be concentrated at the center. That's the core of the star left over. No energy generation. It's just a compact core. And the outer layers are pushed, expelled off into space. But what we want to look at is what happens to these. So 
Most stars, for almost every star in the universe, will do this. Our sun will eventually become a planetary nebula. And in fact, for almost all stars, if they start off with about 10 times the mass of the sun or less, they're going to become a planetary nebula. Well, stars can go up to 100 times the mass of our sun, so there are some stars that cannot do this. But for the most part, almost every star, those, remember those low-mass stars are far more common, so almost every star is eventually going to do this. And we're considering cores less, meaning the core, the material left behind, is less than about one and a half times the mass of the sun, 1.4 to be specific. And there's a critical limit there that we'll talk about. If something happens over 1.4, something different happens to the central object. So we'll look at that coming up. But that's what we're going to look at. But for the most part, that's all that happens. So most stars will do this. They'll eject their outer layers. Those will glow for a few tens of thousands of years, and then they'll fade out. They're still there. The material's expanding out into space. But once it can no longer be excited, you can't see it. You won't be able to see it anymore. So what I want to talk about here is what we're coming up is degenerate stars. And this is what's happening to the core as it contracts. Eventually, you're just compressing things so much that the material can't get any closer together. And that's what we mean by degenerate, is that it's not behaving like ordinary matter. So right now, there's a lot of space between the atoms within us, within our bodies, within the building, within the chairs. There's a lot of space within, within between those atoms. The electrons push each other away. So your, your, your body is mostly empty space between those atoms. If you could get rid of all that empty space, it would be a lot, you would be a lot, lot smaller. Not just a little bit smaller. I mean, minusculely smaller. You could take the entire sun, and if all you do is crush out the space between the atoms, it would be about the size of the Earth. You're leaving the space inside the atom. We haven't gotten there yet. We can still crush that out later. Right now, we're just getting those atoms as close as they can possibly be. And that's what we call a degenerate star, and the reason is this is because of quantum mechanics. Essentially, it says that you know, two electrons cannot be in the same space at the same time. So you can get them closer and closer and closer together. Again, eventually you get to the point where if you compress them anymore, then two electrons are trying to occupy the same space at the same time, which can't happen. So those electrons are then producing a force that pushes them apart. This is what we call the Pauli exclusion principle that just says you can't occupy the, the quantum mechanics. That you can't be that close, any closer together. This pressure supports the star. There always has to be something that's keeping the star from collapsing. Otherwise, it would crush down to nothing and become a black hole. That's what gravity wants to do. Gravity wants to pull everything down into a black hole. So while the star was living, that was the energy being produced. Right? You had all these nuclear explosions essentially going off in the center, pushing, pushing, trying to explode the star apart, and that was balanced by gravity pulling it down. Now that the star is not producing energy, there has to be some kind of pressure, something keeping it from collapsing. Within something like the Earth, right, what keeps the Earth from collapsing down? Well, you know, the rocks pushing against each other eventually gives enough pressure that can hold up against the Earth's gravity. When you get to more massive things like stars, 
You need a, you're pushing things closer and closer together, and you're pushing that star down to about the size of the Earth. So that's just getting rid of that space within the, within the, within, or sorry, space between the atoms. So something about the size, mass of the sun, or even a little bit more, gets compressed down to the size of the Earth. The density becomes tremendous beyond anything we can possibly imagine, a million times the density of water. That's far more dense, if you remember the numbers, when we looked at the sun producing energy at the sun's core right now, the density is about 150 times the density of water. So this is far more than the density of the core of the sun right now. This is when you get teaspoons of material that would weigh millions of tons. That's just how compact, and all that is is crushing out the space. That could be done, you know, if you crush out all the space between the atoms you know, in a person, you know, you're going to be down to minuscule size. Not as big as we are now, not just half the size or a tenth of the size, but very, very tiny in terms of size. These are extremely stable, so unless there's something external going on, that white dwarf is just going to stay there forever. Nothing's going to happen to it. So when our sun becomes a white dwarf, it's unlikely to have any external influences, and it's just going to be a white dwarf, slowly cooling off forever. Most stars will do that. There's only a couple situations where that will change, and we'll be looking at those coming up in the next section. So this is what we mean is eventually that core is just contracting and keeps compressing everything closer and closer and closer together. This is cl as close as you can get things and still have them retain their identity. You can still have carbon atoms. You can still have oxygen. They're still, they're still actually atoms. If you compress them any more than this, then they're going to lose that identity. So, how massive can that core be? Well, there is a limit to that. And that is called the Chandrasekhar limit, after the uh, scientist who came up with this calculation, that how much force can electron degeneracy support? Right? Every, everything has some kind of limit. We can take one of our tables and we can start stacking books on it, right? If I keep stacking astronomy books on it, I might have to go real high. Eventually, I'm going to put that one book too many and the table collapses. With anything, right? Anything you want to put on, eventually it's going to collapse. Well, you can do the calculation that will tell you, you know, what is the limit. Um, if you, and the green line is what they're looking at. There is a limit right there at 1.4 times the mass of our sun at which point, you know, you put the one straw that breaks the camel's back on that star and it collapses. The electron degeneracy can no longer hold it up. So you have 1.4 solar masses, you're fine, you try to add those few extra particles and it's going to collapse. The interesting thing is the size. If you look at the size, this, this is actually a chart of the size. They get smaller and smaller. So a white dwarf, a very low mass white dwarf is actually bigger so one for like our sun, will probably, our sun will probably be somewhere in this range. So about the size of the Earth. If you make it more massive, it keeps getting compressed. You're compressing it more and more and more. You've got more force. You're able to compress it more. You've got more gravity. So you can see how small it's getting. Eventually, you get to the point where it's going to get down to zero. So if you have anything that's more massive, they'll actually collapse through this. They will actually crush the electrons into the atoms. 
And then uh, more things. We'll start looking at supernovae and things that can actually happen there. But under 1.4 solar masses, that's, again, almost every star. Almost all the stars. It's only those few rare ones that are this, that are much more massive than this. So these are the ones that are going to become unstable and continue to collapse. So how can we detect stars like these are going to be small stars. This is something the size of the Earth. Now, that's much smaller than a red dwarf star that we've seen. It's much smaller than any other object. Most of the other objects that we've seen so far, it's smaller than brown dwarf stars. Remember, brown dwarfs were Jupiter-sized objects, roughly. This is Earth-sized objects, which is much, much smaller. So how are you going to be able to detect something like that? Well, you can see them. There actually are things that can be seen. So you can see some of them visually. Here's an example of one. Not the bright object. That's Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. But down there, that little dot is not a planet orbiting Sirius, but is actually a white dwarf orbiting Sirius. So Sirius is a binary star system. You can detect, you can detect two stars there. One is the brightest star in the sky. You can see that off over to the lower left of Orion, generally. Um, and you can't see this one without a telescope, but if you can block out that light or get the light from just this one, you can actually see that there is a second star there. So Sirius is a binary star system where one star is still there going through its life, and one star must have originally been more massive, went through its whole life already, and has already evolved, became a red giant, and ended up as a white dwarf star. So we've missed all of those stages of this star. Could have happened millions, billions of years ago because we don't see any sign of you know, planetary nebula phase. It's all gone. So that's all already happened in this star, and it's just left over. And then the second star is still there. It's still there. Yeah? Does that whole cycle in a binary system like, affect the other star in any major way? It can. It can, and it can cause some. It can actually change the mass of stars. You can actually transfer mass, and we'll be looking at that. How you can transfer mass from one star to another, and in fact, that's one of the ways we can detect them is mass transfer, if they're close enough. So if they're far, if they're widely separated, you won't get any matter being transferred. But when you get them closer together, and sometimes that means you just got to wait for the one star to become a supergiant. Because right? you could have these stars this far, real far away. They're not going to be transferring any mass. But all of a sudden, this one becomes a red giant. And instead of being this little dot over here, it's this big star. All of a sudden, they got closer together. Maybe not their centers, but the outer edge of this is now close enough that the gravity from that star can start pulling material. And there are cases where enough material is transferred from one star to another. So you can actually transfer solar masses worth of material from one star to another. And we can see that. We can see it in some systems. So that does occur. If they're widely separated, it won't make any difference. You won't be close enough to be able to have that. All right. So what's going to happen to these um, eventually? We have a white dwarf star. We see them. They're hard to detect because they are small. But what helps is that they're hot. They start out at hundreds of thousands of degrees. They'll drop down to tens of thousands. They're as hot as some of the hotter stars in the sky. So they're actually still faint, but they are giving off a good amount of energy. But they're not producing anymore. So they will slowly cool off and become a black dwarf star. Right? Had a white dwarf, it was bright. Nothing's happening to it. 
except that it's slowly cooling off to space. So it's going to go from being really hot, it's going to go from being 100,000 degrees to 50,000 to 10,000 to 8,000 to 6,000, and it's going to keep cooling off. All it's going to do is get cooler and cooler and fainter and fainter. And that's because it doesn't have any energy source. It's not producing any energy, and it will change from white to red to black, Black in that it's not giving off any visible light. It'll actually look infrared. So if you looked in the infrared, you'd still be able to see it. This takes a long time because they're so small. The only way it can lose energy is through its surface. And if you have something that's really small, it doesn't have a lot of surface area. So it takes a while for this to cool off. But after many billions of years, in fact, you know, more, more than the age of the universe, eventually the universe would have a lot of black dwarf stars. And they'd just be the white dwarf stars that have cooled off to the point where they're not giving off any visible light. So we know this is what will happen because things will have to cool off. It has no energy source, but there hasn't been yet time for one of these to be able to form. So in the entire history, in 14 billion years, even the first white dwarf star that formed isn't to the point where it cooled off enough that it's going to be cool enough to just be giving off um, infrared radiation. So they're going to be there, but you've got to wait many billions of years from now. That's, that's what eventually a lot of the universe, a lot of the galaxy, will end up being composed of, will be composed of these black dwarf stars. So that's, that's our sun's fate. In five billion, five, six billion years, it'll be ending its life become a planetary nebula, the central core will become a white dwarf, and then if you wait another 50 billion years after that, assuming the universe is still around, then you know, what's going to happen? It's going to cool off even more, and it'll become a black dwarf star. So this is the end fate for most stars. This is where most stars are going to be, because most stars are going to become planetary nebulae, white dwarfs. Most stars are therefore going to eventually become a black dwarf star. Now, the key was that 1.4 solar masses. You've got to get the core down to that. Otherwise, you collapse. Otherwise, you've got too much mass there, and the pressure can no longer hold it up. So we have to look, you know, is this really possible? There's stars that are 10 times the mass of the sun, 20 times the mass of the sun. And I said that stars 10 times the mass of the sun or less will do this. They've got to lose a lot of mass. If, you have, if you're 10 times the mass of the sun... You've got to give off, what, 8.6 times, you've got to get 8.6 solar masses have to be given off. So I'm going to look at one example. Let's pick something in between, though. Let's look at a six solar mass star. So if a star has, starts off with six solar masses, that's well within the range where it's supposed to become a white dwarf star, it has to lose 75% of its mass. See, our sun doesn't have to worry about this. It's only got one solar mass. So no matter what happens to the sun, whatever's left over is going to be under the 1.4. But can a star lose 4.6? Can it lose 75% of its mass in this process? Well, it's possible. And the only reason we know it's possible is because we have looked at young clusters, young star clusters, and we've detected white dwarf stars there. Why does that matter? If we detect, if we look at a young star cluster, remember all the stars form at about the same time, 
So they're aging at about the same time. So if we look at that cluster, remember we looked at the turnoff point. That told us how old the cluster was. All the lower mass stars were still on the main sequence. So we can look at young clusters where six solar mass stars are leaving the main sequence. We find white dwarf stars in those clusters. So somehow these stars with a little bit more than six, with six, seven, eight, ten solar massive, they're the only ones that have had time to evolve yet. And since we see white dwarfs there, they must be able to lose this, this amount of mass. So that process at the end of the life must be able to really expel a lot of mass away from these. We know it because, you know, even if we can't explain how it happens, how it's losing this much mass, we see the evidence. We see that white dwarfs exist here. If they exist in clusters that the only stars that have evolved are six solar masses or more, and we see white dwarfs, those stars must be able to lose that much mass. So there, it must happen. We just may not know how exactly they go about losing it. The planetary nebula phase would do some of it, but you wouldn't necessarily think that would be 75% of its mass. But maybe with more massive stars, it'll work differently. But we do know that it can happen. All right, so finishing up the first section here, lower mass stars expel as a planetary nebula, so they divide into two phases. The outer layers get expelled, and the core contracts to become a white dwarf star. That white dwarf is about the size of the Earth, a million times denser than water. And it will slowly cool over time to become a black dwarf star. All righty, questions? All right. Well, last section I want to look at for today, I'm just going to do section two here, and that will save all of the neutron stars and black hole stuff for Monday. Uh, we want to look at, I showed you this last time, you know, nuclear fusion in a high-mass star. What happens to that star? Well, we were getting to the limit. We had built up, we had hydrogen envelope. Remember, this is not to scale. That hydrogen envelope is most of the size of the star. It goes way out. Just for purposes that you can see everything going on, it's cut down. You have a region where the temperatures and densities are sufficient for hydrogen to be fusing. You have a next region in where helium can fuse. Then you have carbon and oxygen. Then you have magnesium and neon. Then you have silicon and sulfur. And eventually, you get down to the core where iron is present. Iron is the 26th element in the periodic table. So we haven't gotten up that far. There's 92 naturally occurring isotopes. We're up to number 26. But when you get up to number 26, you can't get any more energy. Fusing hydrogen to helium gives you energy. Fusing helium into carbon gives you energy. Fusing carbon into neon, into oxygen and neon, and then neon into magnesium, and magnesium into silicon and sulfur. Those all give you energy. It's less energy each time. A lot of energy for hydrogen, less for helium, and each stage gives you less and less energy. But when you get to iron, you've, you've reached the limit. Fusing iron atoms together gives you no energy. It actually takes energy. So eventually what happens is that this is just collapsing. Now for a high mass star, something 15, 20, 30, 50 times the mass of our sun, that core is going to be more than that 1.4 solar mass limit. So even though it's there, we, even though we, we get down to the white dwarf stage, it doesn't stop it because there's too much pressure on it, so it gets pushed there. 
and electrons get pushed into the nucleus. So electrons negatively charged, protons positively charged. If you push them all together, you can combine an electron and a proton and make a neutron. So essentially, this becomes a big ball of neutrons. It becomes a gigantic atomic nucleus made up of neutrons. The neutrons get pushed together as close as they possibly can. Right? Same thing as the electrons. You can get the electrons so close, you try to get them any closer, they're trying to occupy the same space at the same time. That can't happen. Well, the neutrons can't occupy the same space at the same time. So you'll get a degenerate neutron pressure that will eventually stop it from collapsing. So as it collapses down, eventually when that happens, as that collapses down, eventually you hit kind of this rock. All of a sudden it collapses and it stops. So everything coming in collapses downward and bounces off this very solid object. Remember how dense the one was? Right? We had the density of a, neutral, of a white dwarf was a million times the density of the sun. We've condensed this down even smaller. Same mass, or even more, but we've condensed it even smaller. So you know, a million times the density of water starts to seem like you know, air, swimming through air, compared to the densities here. So everything going down bounces, hits this, and then bounces back out and explodes. So that's essentially what's going to happen. What happens in a supernova explosion? The core is gone from that white dwarf-sized object when, it couldn't, when the electrons couldn't stop it to something about 20 kilometers in size, about 12 miles, you know, size of a good-sized city. So you've gone from the size of the Earth down to the size of a city, and it does that really fast. Neutron pressure can now hold it up, unless the mass is too much. That's when we'll start talking about black holes. If there's too much material, then guess what? The neutrons have a limit too. There's a limit to how much the neutrons can hold up and eventually you can put that one too many neutron there that will cause it to collapse. This then becomes what we call, a, this, in this case, it becomes what we call a neutron star. Why? Because it's made up of neutrons. The protons and electrons are all crushed together. We've lost all the identity of what things were made up of now. Remember, a white dwarf star still had atoms. You could have iron atoms, oxygen atoms, you know, whatever had been there before, carbon atoms, most, mostly carbon and oxygen, but you could have others. They all had their identity as atoms. They still had their nucleus with however many protons and neutrons, and they had their electrons orbiting them, which were pressure, the pressure holding it up. When you crush the electrons into the nucleus, you lose all of that. So there are no more, in a neutron star, there are no atoms. It's not made up of carbon or iron or anything else. It's just made up of neutrons. That's it. It doesn't have any atomic identity like the other, like a white dwarf star. Now, it goes really quick, so you collapse down and stop. So you get collapsed down, right? Everything's falling in on you, and all of a sudden, this little bit stops. Material's still falling in. The rest of it's still falling in and bounces back off. So that creates a shock wave that will eventually expel the outer layers out into space. So it compacts down and bounces and explodes back out into space. This is what we call a supernova. This is one type, I should say, of supernova explosion that can occur. We actually call it a type 2. I'll talk about type 1 later. But a type 2 supernova is what happens at the end of the life of a really massive star because that core became iron. Once that core becomes iron, there's no more energy source. So when you try to fuse the iron together, you can. It doesn't mean you can't fuse the iron atoms together. To get high enough temperatures and pressures, they'll stick. 
But guess what? It took energy. Instead of giving you energy, heating you up, it took energy and cooled the core down. So when things cool down, they collapse more. So eventually, once you build up to iron, within a day or so, the whole thing will collapse and rebound and become a supernova. And that will expel the outer layers out, out into space. So you know, what's going to happen to this, what's going to happen to any object, really depends on its mass. And I've got a table here on the next slide that kind of just, you know, what happens compared to the, getting this all in terms of mass of the sun, what is going to happen to this? So this is right from your textbook in chapter 23. If you have a mass less than about 1 one-hundredth the mass of the sun, you get a planet. That's where we fall. That's where Jupiter falls. You know, all the other planets in our solar system are less than 1 one-hundredth the mass of the sun. Between a hundredth and about eight one-hundredths becomes a brown dwarf. If you remember the definition, a brown dwarf can fuse deuterium but cannot fuse hydrogen. That's kind of the dividing line. Planets can't fuse anything. Brown dwarf can fuse deuterium, gets a little bit of energy, but it does not get hot enough at the core to fuse hydrogen. Lower mass stars become white dwarfs. Anything between about the limit for a brown dwarf, 0.08, and about 10 becomes a white dwarf. There are different types of white dwarfs. A really low mass star never gets to fuse helium. Won't get hot enough. Our sun will get hot enough to fuse helium, but a really low mass star will not. So it'll just become a white dwarf that's made up of helium. Masses like our sun, this is where a lot of the stars fall, will become a white dwarf made of carbon and oxygen. The higher mass limit of this will become oxygen, neon, magnesium. They'll have gone through a few more stages of fusion. And finally, anything over about 10 times the mass of our sun will become a supernova. And it can leave two things behind. It can leave a neutron star, as we talked about. So a neutron star could be, it forms at some point. Whether it remains depends on the mass, just like a white dwarf. If it was 1.3, it's a white dwarf. If it's 1.5, it has to collapse to become a neutron star. So you can get a supernova that leaves a neutron star. And if you get over about 40 times the mass of the sun, the neutron pressure will not be able to hold it up. You put that one too many neutron there, and the neutron pressure, you know, just like our table, keeps stacking it up with books. Eventually, you know, maybe we've got to stack it 50 feet high. I don't know how strong these tables are. But eventually, I'll put one too many books on it, and the table will give up and collapse. Eventually, you put one too many neutrons on this star, and it will collapse. The neutron pressure can no longer hold it, and it will become a black hole. So you can form black holes at the center of the star. The, uh, the mechanism, you still can get a supernova explosion out of it. It's that, in, it's that compression at the end that will actually form the black hole. All right, so effects of supernovae. What happens with supernovae? Uh, this is where everything comes from, all the heavy elements. I mean, the only things we talked up to were element 26. There's lots of elements that are heavier than that. Gold, silver, lead, uranium, those are all elements that we know. Those are all heavier than iron. They are formed in a supernova explosion. So how can you form? You can't form them by fusing things together because it takes energy. Well, guess what? A supernova has more energy than we can begin to imagine. 
You can ignore the most massive solar flare is like nothing compared to a supernova explosion. The most massive coronal mass ejection, right, which can fry all of our electronic equipment, is nothing compared to a supernova. So these are elements that are there. And so it also creates them. It also puts them back into the interstellar medium so that we can have planets and stars like our solar system that formed from the remnants of supernovae of the past. So every time a supernova nova occurs, it puts things like gold and silver out into space that allows the next generation of stars to be able to form. So those very first generations of stars could not have had planets like the Earth. Wouldn't have had planets like the Earth because they didn't have carbon, they didn't have uh, iron, they didn't have oxygen, they didn't have silicon, you know, all the things that make up the rocks here on the earth, the metallic material on the earth, had to form within a star and had to get back out into the universe. So most stars don't, most stars become planetary nebulae, they might put a little bit of material back out, but most of it's hydrogen and helium again. So it doesn't really help with giving us any of the heavier elements. Supernovae are where the heavier elements come from. So anything, pretty much anything heavier than iron that you have was formed within a supernova and expelled out within a supernova. So you know some of the elements in your body have been there. You've been there. You've been through a supernova. Not you as a person, but individual atoms within you. That's where anything heavier came from. So I don't know, iron in your blood, a lot of that came out of a supernova explosion when it was being produced there. A supernova, as I said, it's, you know, it's a tremendous amount of energy. We can't begin to imagine this. I mean, massive solar flares, you know, a massive solar flare can make you know, a nuclear warhead look like nothing. These make you know, a massive solar flare look like nothing. A, a supernova that occurred within 50 light years of us would wipe out life on Earth. That much energy is being put out. And you think that's 50 light years away. That would be putting out enough energy just coming to the Earth. Think of, don't think of how much energy it's sending out in all the other directions. We're just talking about the little bit that's coming towards our solar system would be intense enough to wipe out life on Earth. Um, if you're 100 light years away, you could have some massive extinctions. So this may have happened. You know, this could be a cause of some of the extinctions in the past could be caused by supernovae. We probably haven't had, ever had one go off with this, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So it's one of the things we look at when we look for life elsewhere. You don't want to look at places where the star density is really high, where there's lots of stars nearby, central portions of our galaxy, because there's lots of supernovae, and that would probably sterilize any planets that form. So you wouldn't get life to be able to form. It's, we're in the outer edges of our galaxy, which gives us a chance to be able to survive. The good thing is, now there's the bad news, we don't want supernovae going off that close. The good thing is, even the ones that are forming in Orion are 1,500 light years away. Well outside this limit. So they're not going to mean, doesn't mean they couldn't cause some small amount of damage, but they're not going to be anything significant. There's nothing even close to that that would ever go supernova at this point. So, you know, we're safe at this, safe at this point uh, from that. But it is something to think about when we look at life elsewhere. You know, where can life form? You know, you're not likely to form life in a big cluster of stars where stars are going supernovae. They're going to constantly, those supernovae can sterilize things 
with the immense amount of energy that they're producing. So um, I want to just mention a couple of the supernovae. There's been a few of these that we've looked at. There's only been a few that have been observed. There, I mean, they take the most massive stars. So supernovae within our galaxy, there's only been a handful within the last thousand years that we've seen. And in fact, here's several of them. Uh, supernova of uh, 1006, which was recorded. And we can actually find the visible remnant. If we go look at where, where people recorded this a thousand years ago, we can go look. If we go to that location in the sky, we actually find the remnant of a star. So the star that has exploded and has been expanding now for a thousand years. Uh, one of the better known ones is the supernova of 1054. Uh, this is called the Crab Nebula. And there is a supernova. It's a supernova that exploded and was seen to explode back in 1054. So not quite a thousand years ago. And what happens over those, that thousand years? Well, we saw a very bright star. A supernova like these, these are visible during the day. That's how bright they are. Even these things that are further away, these were nowhere near close enough to cause extinctions. Uh, but they would be bright enough to be seen during the day. Right? We can't see anything else. What else do we see during the day? We see the sun, obviously. The sun brightens up enough things that you can see the moon. Sometimes if you look right and you know where to look, you can see Venus. That's about it. So these things can get that bright. These can be bright enough to be seen during the day. Uh, this is actually uh, one seen in the constellation of Taurus, so it was very well known. The other two in the 15 and 1600s occurred you know, relatively close together. So we had a pair there and we had a pair there. Uh, 1572, Tycho's supernova, one observed by Tycho. Uh, Kepler's supernova, sometimes called, is the one of 1604. That's it. We're waiting still. We've been waiting for since 1604 to have a supernova in our galaxy. Doesn't mean none has ever gone off. Some could be on the other side of the galaxy. They could be blocked by dust. We wouldn't see them. Right? We can't see the center of our galaxy. We can't see things beyond on the other side of our galaxy. But nothing on our side of the galaxy, even thousands or tens of thousands of light years away, has ever gone supernova. And if you look at the date there, and maybe you remember, 1604, Galileo and the telescope, 1610. We have not had a supernova since the development of the telescope that has gone off. In our galaxy, we've seen lots of them in other galaxies. But within our galaxy, so close enough to have seen and to be seen and studied, has not happened. The closest we ever had was back in 1987. And this is the supernova known as 1987A. That's how we name supernovae. The year A, B, C, D, and so on through the alphabet for the first supernova to be discovered. This is the nearest one that ever occurred since the invention of the telescope, February of 1987. Uh, that was, actually remember, that was my, that was the beginning of, right, towards the end of my senior year, so, in college, so, as an astronomy major. So it was kind of a cool thing to have gone off at that point. Uh, this occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud. If you go south of the equator, there are actually two galaxies that you can see, the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. They're satellite galaxies of our Milky Way. So they're not part of our Milky Way, but they orbit around our Milky Way, and they're relatively close. They're only talking hundreds of thousands of light years away instead of millions of light years away. So this was studied here. This is actually an image of it uh, taken later. So you, the central portion, we can still see an expanding ring. At this point, I don't remember how 
It's a Hubble image, so it had to be taken uh, probably within the last 10, probably within the last 10 years or so. But that's the, that's the beginnings of the supernova remnant beginning to expand out. This was the first time we had ever seen the star had been recorded before. Right? We see supernovae going off in other galaxies. All of a sudden, you get this real bright object in a galaxy, but you couldn't see it. If it's millions of light years away, you can't go see. What was that star before? You can't go back to old images. It's too faint. You see the glow of the galaxy. You can't see the individual stars. This one's close enough that we could actually see it. And one of the things that confused us was that the star that was logged to be at this position from lots of images and lots of material taken before was a blue supergiant. Not the type that we thought would have formed a supernova. So we may not, we're still trying to understand these. You know, we'd love to see more supernovae go off in the Magellanic Clouds, you know, far away from us in our galaxy. Obviously, you know, astronomers still don't want one coming off close because that would not be a pleasant thing for us. But you know, the chance to be able to see a supernova and to study, you know, here we see one. Is this just a glitch? And are we right? Or do we have to really rethink how these form? I mean, we know that they form, but the methods by which supernovae occur may be something a little bit different. And we can still see that material expanding out. So if we could wait you know, hundreds of years or so, we'll start to see a supernova remnant, much like the ones we looked at previously, the Crab Nebula or the remnant of supernova uh, 1006 that we've seen. So eventually it will turn into something a little closer to those, although this is, this is a bit further away as well. So finishing up, again, the electron degeneracy. Electrons cannot support something if it's more than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, and that will form a neutron star. Um, the core collapses down to this really dense object, whether it be a neutron star or a black hole, and the outer layers are expelled outward in a massive explosion. And again, that's where a lot of the elements, a lot of the heavier elements get expelled back out into the universe. So especially the, what we look at as metals, heavy elements, things like iron, uh, things like copper, things like copper, zinc, you know, all of the heavier elements, gold and silver, get expelled out in something like this. And we've seen a number of them, but nothing in our galaxy since the invention of the telescope. So the last one's been hundreds of years. You know, we're due for one, but it's one of those things. You know, will it happen this year? I can't tell you. Will it happen next year, a decade from now, a hundred years from now? You know, in terms of laws of probability are about equally uh, likely. Alrighty, so questions? I'm gonna stop there. That way next time I'm really talking about, about the neutron star, what happens there. And then the, we'll go on to chapter 24, which talks about general relativity, which we need as a new gravity to really, new, new form of gravity to really understand a little bit more about black holes. All righty. So 